Welcome to the eighth episode of Innovation Matters, a podcast brought to you by Netherlands Innovation Network. Today, we are back with the researchers of Singapore National Eye Center. Last time, we talked about the development of Selena Plus, the AI tool to detect diabetes-related eye disease and the impact of COVID on digitalization in the healthcare sector in Singapore. If you missed the first episode, we are here with Professor Wong, Professor Tan and Professor Ting, who are ophthalmologists at the Singapore National Eye Hospital, and with Professor Liu, who is a computer scientist at ASTAR in Singapore. Today, we will focus on challenges, patient and AI interaction, data availability, data sharing methods such as federated learning, and Singapore's outlook on international collaboration. The use of AI in healthcare goes back several decades, with the first medical chatbot used in 1964. However, limitations in early models prevented widespread acceptance and application to medicine. In the early 2000s, many of these limitations were overcome by the arrival of deep learning. Professor Wong, this was about the time that you started working as a doctor. What changes have you witnessed? The senior doctors will say it is the art of medicine, right? not the science of medicine. So in one sense, in that whole quick 10, 20 years, we have now started to say it is not just by saying, you know, uh, just because I have more experience, I'm able to recognize disease better than you. I think we are having a democratization, diagnosis, prediction, management, and data that will allow much better diagnosis and management will allow many more people to do things that previously was very limited to very few senior doctors in the profession. So it's going to be better for everybody. But just remember that data as a new oil is only very recent and it is something that I think the healthcare sector will struggle with for a while. Is the use of AI currently widespread in Singapore hospitals? Or is there still hesitation maybe among physicians to use it? I think they, the typical physician would have a, the best word, maybe a healthy amount of skepticism. And that's not a bad thing as well. Yeah. I think the day the physician accepts data, whether it's from AI or pharma company, yeah. without scrutinizing it, then we, we will eventually be in trouble because we know that technologies are often not as good as advertised. And more importantly, a, a lot of times you don't fully understand technology until it's gone into broader implementation or integration and then you see the real effects of it so but i do think physicians because of the way we are trained we are always trained to understand for example the pathophysiological basis of a disease or treatment so understanding how something works and not blindly trusting it is a very part, important part of the scientific or medical process. So they will question. And where I feel that the lead needs to be bridged is for them to understand that AI may not deal with information or data in exactly the same way that we do. But it's more important to ensure they understand that how the AI was trained was rigorous. And that becomes important because the physician does want to know the context that AI was trained with and how that context would apply to their own patient. So trust is important and helping, I think it's very important whoever develops these algorithms spends a lot of time communicating these variables to to the physician. It's the same way as when a new drug comes on, the drug company does need to spend a lot of effort in, with medical education and providing that, that data that for which the drug was, was developed. It's the same thing that the AI 
our government provider cannot expect their physician to take things at face value. They need to provide their conceptual data, the proof of the pudding. Um, if you're positioning your AI where it's going to replace the doctor's function uh, completely, then the level of trust that you will need is higher. But I think where AI is really going to be, I believe the most successful is when it is when it augments or when it's insidious or invisible AI, as the buzzword puts it. So it's when the AI is used to make the phys- every single part of the physician's task all the more quicker, easier, more accurate. With large tech companies such as Apple and Google moving more and more into the healthcare domain, health data is not just coming from the medical sector. Singapore has partnered Apple on national health initiative Lumi Health, encouraging people to live healthier lives via gamification. But for accurate predictions and management of disease, you still need traditional data sources as well. So as you mentioned, data is key in the whole process and good quality data is very important. So you need to first understand where and how we can get this good quality data. Um, obviously, the, the initial basis for data science in medicine has always been well-curated data collected from funded and well-characterized research studies. But we know that that's changing. So I think one of the areas where, which is a big enabler, is the use of electronic medical records. But even then, the data is only as good as the person, often the physician or someone else who put the data in. So data integrity is something that will will affect how well your data can be used to train artificial intelligence algorithms. Natural, Natural language processing is one of those AI technologies that may help us better make use of uh, electronic medical records data because it can then allow an algorithm to tease out um, certain outcomes or fields or a greater understanding of what the physician keys in as a free text in order for us to get outcomes we can train an AI on. And that we still have a lot of barriers that we still need to overcome because at the end of the day, there are, there are issues that need to be tackled. For example, who owns the data? How do you ensure this data can be used? Uh, and at the same time, preserve the patient's uh, privacy and their other rights that they have. And the reality, it's, it's easy to say everybody's on an electronic medical record, but if every single physician uses a different record, it's not going to be so easy to integrate that data. So I think in the longer run, you would probably need bigger collaborative platforms. And this, this is really not going to be within one country. It's often going to have to be something that's multinational, where you can uh, agree on certain ways the data will be handled, packaged, and then enable a de-identification and maybe collation of all of this international long-term data uh, that can be used to train artificial intelligence. What value does AI currently provide in your clinical practice? So I think we've seen instances, maybe the easier way to define it is images where on the first initial glance, we don't pick up something. The AI picks something up and when you're forced to scrutinize it with the extra time, you find, hey, actually there was something that I might have missed. And that, that's the most obvious. But we also know that AI is able to give us data or metrics that we can't interpret directly from the photo or from or from the, that multitude of data because the human brain is great at innovation but not always so good at integrating millions of data points. And, and that will be, will be an example. A, a, AI can take 10 risk factors and an image and give you a predictive score. You would look at some risk factors, maybe take a risk calculator, look at the image, try to make sense of it, 
and then come up with a conclusion and you would never come up with a conclusion that's anywhere with any amount of the same level of certainty. Of course, any outcome that the AI produces always doesn't have 100% certainty because we're always dealing with statistical models so we're always talking of probability of of something happening and how confident or your confidence interval that that probability is true. So I'll give you an example. I think one of the most famous uh, uh, way of current prediction of heart disease is uh, this equation that was derived from Framingham. It's a very classic study. And the Framingham equation essentially has several simple data inputs. Age of the person, the blood pressure levels, cholesterol, smoking status, right? Something simple. When it's fed in, it goes uh, and gives a probability of high, medium, and low risk of developing heart disease in 10 years. Now, it's been used by physicians and uh, doctors in saying, okay, you have high risk, you better watch your diet and do exercise. If you have low risk, continue your lifestyle. Now, the Framingham equation as I said, has several simple data points. But that really does not really capture what a person's risk is. And I think Gavin has mentioned this. So, for example, what does the blood pressure value that's entered on the Framingham equation mean? Is it a blood pressure of yesterday, six months ago, the blood pressure of someone who's resting, or the blood pressure of someone who's sleeping, right? So I think as we start having integrated digital technology and much more huge data sets and huge data, it is not possible for whether the equation or the physicians to make that prediction anymore because you're going to have blood pressure that is likely going to be from some wearables from a watch uh, and cholesterol measurements over a lifetime of yearly checkups. So those data cannot be integrated by the doctor uh, and simply, right? And it needs AI to integrate it and therefore your risk of heart disease over time, over a 10-year period that's predicted by an AI algorithm is likely going to be more precise, more up-to-date, takes in more data points, and it's not possible for physicians to do this. So those are the exciting things that we will like to have uh, uh, that AI promises. So we've been talking about many data points and AI supporting the doctor in decision-making, integrating all this data. But what about the opposite? For example, in Singapore, being a country of only 5 million people, which especially for rare diseases leaves very few data points. Do you need a lot of data for the development of AI tools? Uh, researchers uh, from AI are talking about small data, big tasks. Uh, previously, people are talking about big data, but now people are actually looking to the small data. Uh, the reason why is also maybe the availability of data. Uh, the difficulty to label all the data. Um, so in order to solve, uh, to have this kind of uh, small data but uh, big task, one uh, technology is to incorporate the medical knowledge into the AI system instead of just rely on the pure data. Take for example, when we see a cat on the table, even though the cat looks similar to the tiger from the computer perspective, if we give a very small amount of data, computer cannot differentiate which one is tiger, which one is kite. But when we put a kite on the table, when we ask the small kids, of course it's a kite because tiger usually doesn't sit on top of the table. So if we use this <laughs> knowledge graph put into the AI system, it will help the AI system to make the right prediction. It's a kite instead of tiger. And what are some of the methods or technologies you use to 
to deal with the problem of data scarcity? Uh, I would like to talk about two points to address these uh, challenges. The first one is uh, called transfer learning. So basically, it means instead of train a deep learning system from scratch, we can leverage on a model chain using other data sets. Uh, recently, we published together with Bob Wang, uh, Daniel on um, New England General Medicine to detect something called uh, papillo edema using uh, eye images. Uh, that disease actually is a brain disease, but we are able to use the retinal image to detect that disease, which is very rare. Not so many cases in Singapore or even around the world. So in this case, how do we train a good robust system to detect this disease? We actually, we didn't start from scratch. We use something, the data from uh, an image net, which consists of uh, millions of uh, images, but not medical images. They are cars, phones, laptops, airplanes. Then we use those images to bootstrap the network. We train using those millions of images to train an uh, initial version of the deep learning system. And based on that, we fit into the Habitima images to fine-tune the system. So in that case, we do not need too many such Habitima images to train the system. So the transfer learning is very powerful to address the small data issue. So we have transfer learning. Uh, are there others as well? Yes, I think the most exciting one is called self-supervised learning, uh, which means uh, the system is able to get himself to learn from the data instead of relying on human graders to give labels, to give allocation to the data. Uh, some researchers said uh, supervised learning is like an opium to computer scientists <laughs> because it's so good. It always helps us to achieve 95% and 6%. That's why every time when the performance job, I always call Daniel, hey, can you give me more data with better labels so I can push my AUC, my performance to 96, 97. But it's very tedious. And your know, time is precious, and uh, we cannot always rely on him to give us label. So in this case, researchers are looking to self-supervise. Actually, it's something similar to uh, what, how our kids uh, learn when they interact in their daily life. Uh, for example, in, com- in natural language processing, how we, what we're doing is we just take any sentence from any book, and we take out some sentence and use that as a label to train the AI system. So the input is a sentence without with the blank. The output, actually we're not the output because it's taken from, from a textbook. Then we have a training sample. So it, it, we also have labels, a label that doesn't come from human. The label comes from the data itself. Then we, in that case, have millions or even billions of sentences to train the AI system. That, that's how the now the language model achieve very good performance. A few months back, uh, OpenAI launched something called GPT-3. So that model is so impressive. It can generate very good sentences. It can even generate very good articles. So that's uh, one way to train an AI system using a self-supervised learning. So uh, we're also trying to look into this uh, in computer vision setting. How can we also do the same thing to train an AI system uh, for computer vision task? Actually looking at the NLP, <clears throat> I have also uh, come across uh, how uh, the AI can be used to write articles, like what you yes. has said. Uh, New Yorker, in fact, has just uh, published this um, this uh, last year or two years ago, uh, saying that if you feed the AI system with exactly you know the transformer network, um, a GP three system, you could actually uh, feed them with two paragraphs worth of articles, and then the AI could actually give you 
the other subsequent two to three pages worth of content based on what you wanted the stories to go. So will we expect that uh, we should have a New England Journal of Medicine papers that is done by a <laughs> robot and an artificial intelligence instead of real authors? So we have discussed transfer learning and self-supervised learning. Besides using these methods to make the best use of limited data, another way is looking at sharing data internationally. But of course, medical data is very sensitive, making sharing across the border quite tricky. Yang techniques is, uh, is called fact-data learning. As, uh, so traditionally, we need to put the data to com where the computing is, which means we need to call our collectors. Can you send your data to my data center such that we can put all data together in one place then to train a big AI model? But there are limitations. For example, IRB constraint security concerns, data cannot be sent across the border. So in this case, we are now looking into this federal uh, learning, which basically means instead of putting push the data to where computing is, we push the computing to where data is located. So in that case, the data still can be in its original place. For example, the data from Japan still can be located in Japan. And then, uh, we use this uh, system such that the data, they can still participate in the AI training, but the data still in their original data center. But in this case, we are able to train a very big uh, AI model using all the data from our partners, but without worrying about data privacy and data security. So we could probably work with people, let's say from the US or UK, without them saying that, oh my, images and data cannot be exported out of our country because of privacy and security concerns. In the Netherlands, Health RI is building a national health research infrastructure. Health RI is a public-private partnership, established in 2015 and consisting of more than 70 stakeholders, such as hospitals, insurance companies and universities. Recently, this initiative received 69 million euros from the National Growth Fund to build an integrated health data infrastructure. This is essential to enable better data-driven medical research and AI applications in health and healthcare, and to enable organizations outside of the hospital, such such as biomedical startups and SMEs, to use this data to create products and services. In Singapore, such platforms are in the making as well. Yeah, as we discussed just now, the access to data, access to uh, real-world clinical problems are the kind of uh, challenges for healthcare AI solutions. So to address those uh, challenges, in fact, uh, Daniel and I and other conditions, other conditions uh, we are planning to build a consortium, basically to bring all the partners, startups, SME, conditions, uh, cloud computing uh, service providers to pull all the stakeholders in one place such that we can share data, we can share problem statement, we can share the use cases. This is uh, something that we are actually trying to bring in uh, the whole entire ecosystem, uh, you know, whether it's going to be physicians, or you know, nursing, allied health professionals, or in the private industries, people and the technical teams, uh, whether it's from like what Gavin said, universities or institute of higher learnings. Um, this uh, we're trying to actually create this ecosystem and also how we can encourage more startups, uh, companies, and uh, the younger generations or even the older generations to come out and to drive the startup company. Before we close this episode, there's one more thing I would like to ask you. As we will have an international audience, for example, listeners from the Netherlands that are active in this field, 
Is Singapore actually open for international collaboration? And what would your advice be to listeners? Singapore is very open to collaboration and Singapore is part of the international community. Singapore wants to partner with everyone to be you know, a smart nation and AI digital strategies and technology continues to be critical for Singapore's economic development. So I think the first uh, message to all the potential listeners and partners out there is reach out to us. There are many agencies here who are willing to help, to collaborate, and to look for some uh, possibilities. Uh, Having said that, like any new technology uh, and innovation, Singapore is still struggling to understand uh, the balance between a very free, laser-fair collaborative model whereby data are uh, sent uh, and agreements are signed easily without consideration of privacy, security, and so forth. So I would say that uh, everyone's learning. Uh, There will be hiccups along the way uh, and uh, collaborators may feel, well, it's not that simple. There's still some bureaucracy. I think that's just part and parcel of the journey. Uh, Like any other technology and new platforms, uh, uh, as long as there's some persistence, uh, I would say that it will be rewarding for international collaborators to work with us in Singapore. Uh, Singapore in general is is quite an open um, ecosystem, both economically and scientifically. And I think at many levels, there are a lot of government agencies that's trying to promote the the use, development of artificial intelligence, not just in medicine, but in in the whole national ecosystem. So from the government level, there there are welcome arms. Um, On the individual institution level, I think most of the hospitals, as well as the multiple research institutions, whether it's related to ASTAR University, based on, are all trying to work on artificial intelligence. So I think there will be a lot of opportunities for collaboration. But like any other collaboration, you need to then go down to the detail of finding the right partner, finding goals where you and your partner are both aligned. If you are interested in working together with Singapore on these topics, for example, in the platform Daniel and Young are building, or in Selena Plus, you can reach out to us. Selena Plus has been spun off to a startup company Iris and has been CE marked in Europe. If you are a care provider and interested to learn more about Selena Plus to detect diabetic retinopathy and other diseases via retinal scan, you can find the link in the show notes. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Netherlands Innovation Network Singapore, or drop us an email at the email address in the show notes. That way you'll be notified of future events. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you back on this channel.